Check, check. Welcome to the Dispatches from the Scandamaniac podcast. My guest today is Zane Ali. Zane, can you do me a favor and ring the ship's bell? For sure. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Um, yeah, Zane, so uh, I've been, you know, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I've kind of just been interviewing my whole fan group, but you're uh, you're the new new fan group, new to Yellowknife. Uh, how long have you been in Yellowknife now? Just since June, so not even, was it eight months now, coming up? Or yeah. Something like that. Um, and there are a couple things I kind of wanted to talk to you about today, Zane, is that there's a few things I kind of like to talk about on this podcast. One is identity okay. and mostly in my guests identity and kind mm-hmm. of mine and also talk about Yellowknife. I like talking about Yellowknife. Um, I think we've had some good chats about archaeology. I'd kind of like to get into that. Um, maybe psychedelics, music sure. festivals. I don't know. Just yeah. introversion, extroversion and kind of I like talking about a lot these like duality or these kind of polar opposites and how i like just ranting about all sorts of things so uh sounds like it's all up my alley so yeah for (laughs) without uh further ado maybe we can just start kind of with who you are and if you could kind of just cool we were just kind of chatting about your family story and Mm -hmm. you know uh you can give me some interesting points about that yeah sure so like i was born and raised in edmonton but i'm a first generation canadian um my parents were born in fiji and then a number of generations back generally between four and six generations or five generations would have been back uh, from somewhere in India, somewhere in Pakistan, a couple of the different areas. Uh, And then they moved over to Fiji um, when the British basically took rule uh, and ran a bunch of sugar sugar cane plantations. Uh, So most um, people from India went over to Fiji and basically were serfs for them. And they did that for a number of years. Uh, They'd have to save up and kind of buy their freedom back and it's gotten to the point now where it's just like there's sugar plantations still yeah. uh, but they're not run by the british like fiji gained independence back in the 80s which is nice so ever since then though it's the dynamics that's pretty really late interesting actually it is uh but i make the joke that it is the same time canada signed our charter of rights and freedoms <laughs> yeah, yeah. and fully actually separated so fair, fair. fiji is actually older in its independence in canada <laughs> <laughs> so it's a pretty funny kind of thing but they've been in coups ever since up until like the mid-2000s um, constant military coups, but bloodless coups, uh, coups, which is pretty interesting. Whereas most coups have vi- quite a bit of violence. Um, I think Fiji has had more than 10 coups since the early 80s. That's crazy. It's like and, Thailand levels. Yeah, exactly. But no violence, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is really interesting. So, so it's a lot of passive kind of takeover and, and back and forth uh, of the government by the military, which is run by a um, couple different individuals. But the military is uh, primarily indigenous run. Whereas the government tends to be uh, Indian run. So that, that's where it kind of goes back and forth quite a bit. Okay, yeah. Can you kind of walk me through that, how that relates to you and your family? So you are in Indo-Fijian? Yeah, right? so that's... And, uh, it's or someone, like, are you indigenous Fijian somewhere? No, so I, who knows what my yeah. bloodline really <laughs> yeah, is, right? Uh, but, like, um, if someone was to ask me what my cultural heritage would be, I'd say Indo-Fijian. Okay. So I can't really say I have a heritage of being from India because I can't relate with anyone from India, whether it be language, culture, uh, all that type of stuff. I can't really relate with indigenous Fijians because uh, they have a completely different um, culture and stuff. It's more of a, a little bit of a mix of the two, Yeah. which is interesting because then you can go and speak to someone that's straight from India and they'll be like, oh, you're not one of us because you have you know, these islandy kind of characteristics, the type of food you eat is different. And then you'll have the islanders saying, oh, you're not one of us because yeah. you're, you're from a different place. So it's very interesting. And then coming to Canada, that dynamic where you th- go throw in a yeah, third, yeah, yeah. Uh, where now you're a Canadian, but most people assume you're not a Canadian. Uh, and that's, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, especially in Edmonton. I used to always get asked, where are you from? Where are you from? Yeah, Constantly. Yeah. But you know, I'd always answer Edmonton and then be like, no, no, no. Where are you really from? And oh, where were you born? Would be the next question. And I'd be like, Royal Alex Hospital, <laughs> Northside Edmonton. So it'd be pretty funny until they finally asked it properly, being like, what's your heritage? Yeah. And I here? think that's, you know, it that, that question is sometimes asked, I think, just like in an asshole way. Like, where are you from? You're not from Canada, motherfucker. Yeah. And but it's also sometimes just asked by especially when you were younger, like people who are genuinely curious oh, yeah, because sure. like, you know, it's like, why aren't you white? Is yeah. like what they're asking, because <laughs> yeah. a lot of us grew up in small towns and we're like, oh, shit, how's what's that like? Yeah. You know, and I think there's becoming more understanding of how to kind of talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, appropriately, yeah, or like exactly. not completely ignorantly. 
Um, can you give me an so from that like a linguistic perspective, like mm-hmm. what language indigenous Fijians would be speaking, Indo Fijians versus I mean, obviously, India's just uh, yeah, massive so dialects. So. Yeah, so it would be a mix. So, like, a lot of the slang we'll use will be uh, indigenous Fijian slang um, yeah. mixed within with Hindi, uh, like, standard Hindi. Uh, so it can be quite difficult. The best way I can explain it is it's like speaking, um, you know, Canadian J- uh, English and Jamaican English. And, yeah. and then that kind of difference within it where you could have two people speaking the same language but not understanding each other. Yeah, can you can you say something or give me an example of like something mm. that would be like a Fijian slang or I mean, <laughs> I know it's always uh, yeah, like hard to like little, pressure yeah, because no one's gonna understand it. So it's true. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious. Like I, I don't even know if I've ever heard a Fijian. It would be speak. like it would be like hey Salanito, which is like hey son of a gun, or uh, yeah, kind yeah. of thing like that. Whereas in other dialects and more strict dialects, it, you just say hi. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you wouldn't be like, "Hey, you son of a gun!" Like, it just—it's built right in. It's, it's neat. built right in. Yeah, it's neat. Do you think that's kind of there's like an archetype about, like you say, it's like a more of an island language, and mm-hmm. then you compare it to Jamaica, like cultures that I mean, obviously there's British influence yeah, and whatnot. Sure. But like, do you think that kind of has something to do with? I think the, so. Like, I think it's like the island lifestyle. It's very interesting. Like even I've been to islands like Manitoulin Island with Lindsay, where her family is from. And it's very interesting. Where's the, Manitoulin Island? Uh, so it's on one of the Great Lakes. It's on Lake Huron in Ontario. Yeah. Um, it's actually the largest island, freshwater island, I believe, in the Americas. Huh. It's a really cool place. Super beautiful. And, like, they're the lifestyle I really related to, even though they're completely, you know, <laughs> yeah. a whole different cultural group, a whole different everything, but the way they kind of come off a lot more relaxed. I, I don't know if it's about just seeing water every day. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe if that comes to play with it, but I find... A lot of people that have that island style. Another good relation is like the West Indies. Yeah. So if like my family and I know tons of people in Edmonton from the West Indies, and for some reason we are we just have this link. Although you know a lot of them are of an Indian heritage that were moved to run the or work the sugar plantations in the West Indies versus Fiji, they still have a very similar kind of style and flow to it. Yeah, that's a very so similar music style and stuff like that as well. Um. And then the other thing I kind of find interesting is so like, you know, unpacking identity, I think more and more people are trying to like fit it into boxes and mm-hmm. solidify it. And it's like, that's not how yeah. cultures work. And, no. you know, that you're this great example of like, motherfucker, I'm from Edmonton <laughs> and I'm not even like I'm Indo-Fijian. And also I'd like, kind of like you to talk about like, so your family's Muslim. Is yeah. there Indo-Fijians who are not Muslim or was oh, there... Yeah. So there's is there a, that Hindu Muslim divide there to, plus as well? Christian. So like oh, Fiji yeah. is quite <laughs> easily quite evenly split up and exactly because of the British um uh, between actually I'd say it's a four-way split um pretty closely between uh Islam, uh Hinduism, Christianity and then the local indigenous um religions. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting place to see that dynamic where everyone still gets along, everyone's still friends yeah. and even when they move away, we've had a lot of friends and family move from Fiji to Canada of all different uh, religions and they're getting along perfectly fine. Yeah. Like a lot of my family is Hindu. Yeah. So uh, as well as I have family that do uh, relate to Christian values and, and uh, would label themselves as Christian as well too. So it's cool to see that it worked there. For sure. People are going to, you know, bitch about each other. Yeah, and fight. Yeah, you know, you get a little bit of that. Um, but the one nice thing is you don't really get that bloodshed and you don't really get people hating on each other that crazily. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so, would you consider yourself a Muslim now? Like, how? What's your relationship? Yeah. I mean, because there's also, I, I think, so much of being a Muslim or the Islam is is cultural, like oh, you know, sure. and it's like you pull these things from it because it's part of your cultural identity, and yep. you know, going to mosques in Canada, especially, is just like. It's so interesting, the variety of people oh, who yeah. are there. Like, it's such a multicultural place. You see everything. And it's, yeah. uh, like, back home, uh, I've gone to a few different mosques and stuff like that. And my family is made up of two completely different sects. So yeah. in Islam, there's believed to be 99 different kinds. Yeah, yeah. And they'll all go to a different church. So I'll yeah, do yeah. something a little bit differently. And, and myself, uh, my background is the Sydney Muslims, which is probably one of the most commonly heard yeah. of. Uh, and then the Ahmadiyya, which isn't as commonly known of, but they're, uh, and they're two very different ones as well, too. So one of them believes in um, that there's a current prophet and they call him the Hazur. And, yeah. and they basically, he's the leader of, of their um, kind of following. Uh, whereas in the Sunni belief, 
the last prophet stopped with Prophet Muhammad back way back back then. Yeah. Um, so then there's that dynamic as well too, which can be quite difficult to and, try to figure out. So sometimes I find like I'm Muslim, but then people will be like, "What kind of Muslim are yeah, you?" Yeah. And then I'll just be like, "I'm just a Muslim." <laughs> so it's uh, I've always kind of felt that I have been one, and although times I, you know, maybe wouldn't live fully how I think I should live as as a Muslim or. Um, even that I believe all the things, but I find myself coming back and forth quite often. Yeah. And I, this is, I mean, for my own life, I've even like, as I've gotten older, re- like been like, you know what? I am a Christian and I'm yeah. like going to stop focusing on like, like whether you're Presbyterian yeah. or Catholic or, you know, Protestant or Baptist. And it's like, there's all of these <laughs> things. And it's like, I'm stopped focusing on like, you know, the, the like fringe issues. Yeah. Like exactly. really start people like that's how they want to define it and it's like well, that's not really splitting what... hairs at the end of it <laughs> exactly. in my, well, at least in my opinion yeah yeah, yeah. I, um, um cool and so how does that kind of like <laughs> i mean this is a loaded question i guess yeah, but like but... so you you're now in yellow knife mm-hmm. <laughs> northwest territories yep. and like you know for me to get a very surface level understanding of your cultural identity it's yep. like you know it's got a lot of layers so and now all of a sudden you're in a place that is like you know northerner and is like the indigenous population is like the defining culture of the mm-hmm. north like how's that playing out and how you think reflecting on that being in yellow uh, i actually like it quite a bit because like for for a number of years ever since my early 20s um i've always kind of felt more attuned with you know being out in nature and that really being an important aspect to my personal spirituality and religion yeah uh, as a way of connecting right and it wasn't until later, um, when I was doing a lot of my anthropology courses and stuff, when I was really taking a keen interest in learning about Indigenous people, First Nations uh, beliefs, and you know the diversity in the beliefs and all of that kind of stuff, that I really found that it's it's something that um, I do kind of relate to. I know it's kind of hard to say relate when you're a completely different um, cultural background. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's it's something that I found was something. The human yeah. experience is still exactly, very much still there. Very much there. It, yeah, for sure. And that's kind of what it was. And then later on when I started um, doing a little bit more, just experimenting with my own consciousness and things like that and, and using plant medicines and stuff like that to try and work with my own um, psychology and my own kind of personal demons and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I found that, you know, these medicines that these many groups were using for thousands of years to help psychology was was incredible and it was working for myself as well too so that's when i started feeling a little bit more learning more about it and stuff and then ever since coming up it's i do really like being surrounded by it although it, it isn't my cultural heritage it's it's a heritage that i do um i do truly respect and i think is is something that a lot of the world could use so and that's why i really kind of enjoy being up here with that yeah yeah that's super interesting um yeah and i think there's this there's kind of this I don't know. I, I would like to say, and I hope there is this this secondary, or maybe not secondary. There's another psychedelic revival kind of happening. Oh, you sure. know, uh, a lot of the lessons that were learned in the '60s are, you know, being put away, and a lot of the stupidity in the approach to psychedelics, and a lot mm-hmm. of the going back to, you know, traditional ways of using plant medicine is mm-hmm. kind of coming out, and people are taking it more seriously because even in academia, for there was just years of like decades of people ignoring this, yeah. you know? And then there's, you know, where indigenous cultures all over the world practicing different plant medicine. And yeah. it's like, just like the knowledge that is there is just mind blowing. I remember uh, one time hearing this guy speak about ayahuasca and mm-hmm. like, it's a mixture of a, a, a bark and a mm-hmm. root mm-hmm. that grow like 150 kilometers away from each other yeah. amongst tribes who rarely interacted. And, someone figured out how to find those two things, combine them, boil them a certain way yeah. and in order to do it. And when you ask that indigenous group how they figured that out, they, they say, the earth told me. Yep. And to people, that just sounds like a ludicrous answer, but it's like, do you have a better fucking answer? Like, yeah. you know? What is your, like, have you been tuned to that? Whereas all these people have been tuned to it. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that. One of my favorite talks that I've watched um, was a gentleman by the name of his last name was Davies, uh, and he works out of the UBC now, but he was a fellow for uh, National Geographic, and that was one of the things he was doing was going and meeting with tribes and stuff like that, working with shamans uh, down in uh, Central South America, yeah. being like, how do you know this stuff? Like, yeah, yeah. And then the guy just looked at him straight up. He's like, can't you hear it? He's like, the 
plants are talking all the time. He's like, we all our lives have been, you know, we've learned how to open ourselves up to listen to the plants. He, and they went on like a 40 minute hike and found one of like one of the plants that you mentioned for the ayahuasca ceremony. And it was just so far away. And he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, I just like listen and, and kind of keep an open mind to where these things are. And then they show us where they are. And if they don't want to be found, then they won't be found. Yeah. And yeah. it's like even scientifically, our understanding is so limited. We're just like every week there's these new articles about like, oh, trees are always talking to each other. And yeah. they have really advanced communication networks. Yeah. Or like we still don't really understand how monarch butterflies like through several generations get back to the exact same location on earth yeah. to spawn or like we don't understand a lot of these things happening in yeah. nature that are like and it's like it's not a it's not at a brain level it's like a deep dna kind of yeah. seeded into the, the essence of yeah, whatever it is the entire yeah. evolutionary history that we are all part of you know yeah. we all have monkey brains and reptile brains yeah. built into us a mixture of it all yeah uh, that's cool you mentioned that too because it makes me think of uh, there's a theory that all mushrooms are connected throughout the world yeah because I... their their fiber is just so fine and then when you map it it looks like a brain <laughs> no and we're like now if you were realizing if you talk about soil like yeah. 60 percent most of statistics out yeah. but a very significant amount of that matter is mycelium it's yeah. just mushroom networks exactly, like yeah. and in some forests it's just crazy everything we thought that was soil and dirt is is not it's biomass it's yeah. completely alive 100%. and it's full of mycelium communicating on like levels and scopes that like the human brain isn't even no, close not even to close. yeah yeah just those networks and it's interesting because then they'll learn from everything that they attach to yeah exactly so it's, it's, it's so um, cool um and then maybe we could talk about a bit about so you are an archaeologist you went to school for archaeology yeah and... so I, I graduated i'm an anthropology major i did a bunch of um field work as an archaeologist a little bit as a uh, cultural anthropologist <laughs> and i really enjoyed it it's, it's not what i'm doing presently currently i'm um uh, ea at one of the schools here which is awesome i do enjoy working with the kids yeah um but yeah anthropology has got to be my what i love the most and and work with um really anywhere Finding out old stuff that was forgotten is, in my opinion, one of the coolest things. Amen. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to get you to talk about that for a second, but the, the, the tea kettle's boiling, so I'm going to pour a cup of tea. Yeah, so maybe can you just explain? Uh, we got tea now. I don't know what the, yeah. we were talking about before. I always do this, and then yeah. the listener's like, nothing has passed for me. Um, but uh, kind of like why you like anthropology, and like I hear, this is my favorite thing, is I, I believe that almost everyone you meet has something they can talk about passionately that like it creates this inspiration in you and i oh, sure. i hear you kind of talk about archaeological projects you go on and i get like envious of the okay. way you talk about them so maybe like why you like that and i don't uh, know some of the projects you go on just whatever cool. you want to talk about man so probably i've gone on a couple projects um, the bigger one that i went on was over the course of a couple of years it was during did a bunch of field work and a bunch of lab work it was uh, for the bodo archaeological society uh, at the bodo archaeological site it's this site that's um, I don't know if anyone will know where Provost is in Alberta, but it's actually, it's on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. Yeah. Um, probably about three and a half, four hours southeast of Edmonton. Uh, and it's a massive site, and it's a sweet site because it shows an area of cohabitation, which a lot of people talk about back in the day, you know, war and this and that between tribes and groups. This area was an area known for being neutral. There was literally an area within it called the Neutral Hills. Oh, um, interesting. So... What's really cool about the things we were finding there is we were finding pottery and all different types of, um, you know, cultural remains that represented multiple different indigenous groups. Yeah. And not only that, with the pottery, we were finding pottery that was using both styles so that you can see that there's not only uh, cohabitation, but they're sharing ideas, they're sharing uh, designs, art, which is really cool. And yeah. when you can really appreciate someone else's art and use it in your own kind of shows that there's some respect there. Uh, and, and that was all some really cool stuff. It's actually one of the areas where you find the most amount of pottery in, in Canada. Or not in Canada, sorry, in Alberta. Um, where we were working primarily was a bison pound. Um, so a lot of people think a of what? a bison pound. Can you explain what that yeah, is? Yeah, for sure. So it's kind of like having a corral built. So a lot of uh, people think of mass bison hunting is you drive them over a cliff. Yeah. Right? So this, and head buffalo. Exactly. So that's <laughs> the most common and the, the one people go to for sure. Uh, this is a different kind of style because now instead of running them off a cliff, uh, this the Bodo area was uh, is actually all sand dunes and it's, it's very deserty over there. 
So there's large horseshoe sand dunes, and buffalo are horrible at running up sand dunes. So instead of running them off a cliff, you run them into these giant sand dune areas and set up a perimeter of fences and people on the other side of the fences. So you drive whatever few hundred. So you'd have, you know, 40,000 by buffalo or, you know, yeah, 20,000 yeah. giant herd. You'd split off a few hundred and then you'd head them towards your pound. And once they get in the pound and they start getting stuck, then you go in for a massive kill. Yeah, this is uh, very similar to caribou fences up here, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. That makes, uh, it would be the exact same concept. Yeah. Uh, except you're doing it with bison and you're using sand. Yeah. As, as, so you're, they're using the natural landscape, which is really Yeah, cool. and I, I believe caribou fences are, they're strategically placed in like little valleys mm. and that lead to a point that, it's and hard for incline them to jump that they over. don't like. Yeah, they curve often. Oh, cool. Okay. I, I, I'm Never not. <laughs> yeah. You could look into this and then tell me about it because I know absolutely nothing. Um, yeah, that's super. Okay, where is this relation to Wood Buffalo National Park? And like, way like south, because Wood Buffalo, I'm pretty sure, is northern Alberta, northern okay. eastern Alberta. So this is straight south. south, but it actually used to be part of Wood Buffalo Trail. Oh, so okay. what happened was a number of years ago there was a. It's kind of like a tourism type of thing. It was always a trail, but then they started doing where you could go to Wainwright. Yeah. So a lot of people know where Wainwright is. It's that military town. Uh, Bodo's not far from there, and a lot of people that have been to Wainwright know that there's tons of bison all over the place. So yeah. that was actually a corridor where you could go and do like a giant tour of all the bison areas, oh, yeah. uh, which is really cool. Um, so that's why there's so much bison in that area, even till today. Okay, and so Bodo, it's called. Yeah, Bodo. Bodo archaeological site. So, what? How old are we talking about? Like, when uh, you find this, a piece of pottery, when is that? And then other artifacts. Can you so the dating a... on the site. So a lot. The way they do a lot of the dating is using charcoal. So just the burned remains and doing uh, radiocarbon dating. Yeah. So it showed anywhere. I said, from yeah, about... like I know what that means. <laughs> it's a very a lot of people hear radiocarbon dating. Yeah. Uh, so it's anywhere from five hundred years to five thousand years. Uh, and then there's, you know, some debate, maybe it went a little longer than before 5,000. So showing that that same area was in constant use That's amazing. Um, by different groups, co cohabitating groups. Um, and there was like, you could do a whole seasonal round there, which is really cool. Because although there was a lot of sandy areas and kind of plain land, it's the transition into parkland as well too there. So it's in that kind of 50-50 range where you could go and then you're in the bush. Yeah, yeah. And you could, you know, stay there all winter. It's nice and warm. If you've done your hunt and it's a successful hunt, uh, you know, in the fall time, you're eating good. You're eating not too bad. You're warm. Um, there's natural springs there. And there's old timers telling us that, that those springs were still good during the drought in the 30s. Oh, wow. So, you know, during the dirty 30s when no one, all these places were droughting out, these springs were still had lots of water and they'd follow the animals still there and they're still using that water source. Yeah. So it must have been a very, very good area. Um to just live and, and cohabitate. And we did a documentary, which is really cool at that area. Um, there's a show called Wild Archaeology came by. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they end up using some of the footage, but what was really cool is we went to a bunch of the different areas and we went to the neutral hills I was talking about. Yeah. Really cool. They're really super high up. Um, and we had our Cree elder with us and uh, from the area and he was telling us the story and he was telling us a bunch of cultural stories about the whole area and why it was so uh, important. And he was saying that at a time, many, many, uh, you know, years ago, that there was a lot of war and strife in that area before yeah. it became the neutral hills. Uh, and the great creator at the time was hearing the, the calls and the cries and, the, and just the sorrow from both sides uh, for all their family that was dying to this war. So the great creator reached the hand down and pulled up the lands and created the hills. That's great. And, and proclaimed that those hills will be a sacred area and of neutrality that, yeah. you know the, there's enough war uh and what's really interesting is a number around that same period it is said that a giant asteroid came down meteorite smoked in the neutral hills and the indigenous people in that area it, that was a shrine to them they'd go there all the time and there was an actual giant meteorite there uh and then what happened is during colonial era unfortunately uh, a lot of the christian um missionaries and the um, kind of pastors and stuff in the area were like you this is idolatry we're not allowing this yeah, yeah, they yeah. took the sacred rock sent it to the royal uh, ontario museum and there was a prophecy told that if that rock was to remove and to be taken away you'd lose the buffalo and after that the buffalo started dying off huge amounts 
so to what we're thinking in the early 1900s where there's like you know giant killing fields where you dead buffalo and they're just hugely dying and then finally this was maybe i think it was maybe only five ten years ago the royal ontario museum agreed to give it back but they wouldn't even put it back in the same spot they only moved it to the royal alberta museum (laughs) so it's close closer uh and they're saying now the buffalo is slowly coming back the buffalo is now in uh um, banff and all these different areas where they're now slowly starting to come back so a lot of those indigenous groups are saying this is a sign right like we're finally getting what we wanted back and now you can see the earth is is slowly starting to recover um, because you took so many of these sacred things away from us. That's so cool. Um, Can you give me an idea of, because I just have no idea, and it's like obviously just studying the pre-colonial era, or like, you know, that's there's a reason that's a split point because so much happens rapidly and like so much knowledge is lost and so much devastation and cultural genocide and, you know, know, everything. Um, So who in that thousands of years of prehistory what indigenous groups would be using that area and what ones are like still kind of culturally continuous like you mentioned Cree and my understanding is like when I think of the plains of Alberta I think of the plains Cree and like them just being like there continuously can you tell me like groups that would have like preceded them and how that would have worked well a lot of groups were actually at the same time so there was the Cree people which were very common in that area uh, also, the Blackfoot and the Assiniboine. So it was, yeah. that's, those are the three major cultural groups we were getting in that area. And we were getting them all throughout the timelines. So okay. it wasn't like someone found it and then someone else came. It was kind of known to everybody that this is where you go. This is a great place for buffalo. Um, the berries and stuff there are awesome. We just go pick berries all the time. Yeah, the yeah. Saskatoon bushes, massive ones. And just like there was a lot of good things that you could eat out there. And one of the cool things we did is we did school tours. Uh, and tours to the general public and that's one of the things they love hearing the most about we'd go around and be like you can eat that you can eat that yeah that's so cool this tastes like this or like we talk about you you get a lot of cactuses there which is kind of neat little baby small ones the prickly pear cactuses but you could also eat those too you'd be flush them and then that got us to talk to some farmers that were talking about oh yeah you know a lot of farmers uh during the drought would just uh, burn off the needles off of their um cactuses and then let the cows eat that to get their moisture and then save water for themselves so it'll be really cool just like learning from old timers as they're coming and back and forth and this is uh very interesting for sure um yeah that's super interesting and i like kind of these archaeological sites because i think there's just this complete misunderstanding even in canada amongst educated people including myself they're like it blows my mind that the 5,000 year continuous cultural history. And, you know, I'm just starting to delve into this, um, in reading, you know, other sources. And I I would actually like to pick your brain and get some more book lists because it's just, you you can check out my library at home that against our wall. There's so much good stuff there. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's so misunderstood. And we were kind of also talking about too, uh, perhaps you can explain to me kind of these different theories of land bridges that are happening and being thrown around and like how this is, being our thought on this just keeps evolving so up kind of the so the Bering Strait uh, which is where everyone kind of thinks of the crab fishermen now yeah, uh, yeah. Off a lot of those shows so that was once a land bridge um, back way back when when a lot of the water that is now in the oceans was frozen up in the polar ice caps yeah. so it dropped that uh, ocean level in that area plus froze so you yeah. have a really nice land bridge with land on the way yeah. um, so what was the thought is there was multiple different migration cycles uh, over the past up to possibly 40,000 years. A, a lot of the dates are really kind of um, argued against, argued for, and then you always find an older date. So it's very interesting. Uh, it's constantly, um, it's it's a revolution right now uh, in, in that type of thought uh, because we're constantly finding new stuff. Yeah, okay, so that's the part I find super interesting. I never thought about, I didn't know this before. I just thought the Bering Land Bridge was just like one point in time, all these people came at once. Um, but you're saying there's like actually multiple times, the same yeah. land bridge gets formed or is it slightly in different locations? might or? be slightly a little bit different, but it's in that same general area okay. where it would take people from uh, Northeast Russia into Northwestern, uh, and, would now be Alaska. And like, can you give me an idea of like how long like a land bridge exists for and how long it takes people to cross it? Oh yeah. So it could be, you could have a land bridge for a couple thousand years. Like some yeah, of these okay. ice ages lasted 10, 15,000 years. Yeah. So, you know, you could have a point where 
over the course of 2000 years, who knows how many different groups crossed, but they were all part of that migration during that period of the land bridge being open. And then you could have a, gl a global warming period where it'll, you know, um, a lot of that area would melt and the land bridge wouldn't be safe anymore. And what was the main thought, um, again, this can be disputed, is that a lot of the main reason people were coming over is they're f uh, following the megafauna. So your mammoths, your mastodons, um, you know, uh, what else do we have up here? Giant uh, ground sloths, like crazy stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Giant were, beavers. Giant beavers, yeah, you're following them across the land bridge. And that's what brought a lot of people over here for the food. And that could have happened over multiple different migration periods. Um, and that's one of the reasons that they say that you can see quite a quick, uh, distinct um, features in Inuit and Inuvaluit people and First Nations people. They have a completely different genetic makeup. And yeah. it's thought that the Inuvaluit and the Inuit people came in the most recent of uh, uh, land bridges, which would have been, you know, maybe 10,000 years ago versus... 40,000 years ago. Yeah, which is just so mind-blowingly long. Yeah, yeah 30,000 years, a lot can happen. <laughs> yeah, and to think about what was happening, you know, in the rest of the planet 40,000 years ago, I don't actually even know. Like, oh, I, like things were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I... But, like, a lot of the land masses were in the same place, so, like, we, we really haven't had where the continents were very different, uh, unless that's millions of years ago. Uh, okay. So, the, the land masses would have been the same, but the type of environment would have been much different, possibly, and then you know, the, what people were doing was a lot different for sure. Yeah, that's super, super fucking interesting. Um, okay, and maybe we can just kind of talk a little bit. I mean, getting out of... Sometimes I like I like talking about facts and I like yeah. talking shop. <laughs> and, but I, I think the point of this podcast is also kind of like to relate it back to, you know, who you are as an experience. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, as a... No, your experience as a human. As a human, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like you clearly have a passion for this and you'll just go like read a book because you enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, but can you kind of give me like why, like what you, you feel, what I'm always okay. curious, the why, okay. You know, like um, <laughs> pretty interesting. So I've always kind of wondered the why too. Um, but I've, I, I can follow the links like yeah, yeah. social studies was always my favorite subject. Like I always loved learning about myths, legends, and those are always about different cultures, myths and legends. Oh, yeah. Like I can remember being in elementary and just being so stoked to learn about like, um, Greek myths and legends. Those ones I know down pack. Like I took so many classics courses and oh, so it, cool. Oh, so much fun. And this is something I can always remember from when I was a kid. And a lot of people do this: is when you're driving around in the car and you're a kid and you look over and you see someone in a different vehicle. Yeah. And you wonder what's going on in their life. Yeah. And you're like there's an entire universe sitting right there. Yeah. Versus mine, which is right here, and they're probably so different. And then you think about, well, how many people are there out there, right? And then you've got all these little universes all over the place. And the only way to truly understand it is, oh, no, you, no one can truly understand it. The only way to try and grasp the human understanding, in my opinion, is to try and understand all these other different universes as best you can and be open to the fact that your universe is completely different than theirs. Um, I like how you started that, like you know analysis with being attracted to myth and story because that's like one of my favorite things and i literally just when you before you came here me and tanis were kind of talking about stories and mm -hmm. why people like storytelling and one of the reasons i like this podcast is because it like gets me off my phone gets me having more intimate mm -hmm. conversations it makes me a better listener and it's like people tell stories and yeah. like i think storytelling is maybe like it's I don't want to say it's a lost art, but it's like it's being underappreciated in sure. a lot of mediums to just For like sure. sit and have someone tell you an oral history of something or a myth. Yeah. And like the discounting of myths that's been happening in, you know, constant and it sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's so stupid how yeah. <laughs> much people are discounting these stories that have existed forever and have mm -hmm. like, you know, fundamental meaning. There's something um, to it. It's yeah, like absolutely. They, they've supposedly found Troy and, and all these different things. And they're like, oh, Homer, no big deal, blah, blah, blah. The Iliad was a lie. And yeah. now they're starting to pull up these places that they thought were fictional, which is really cool to see. Yeah, it's super cool. And when you tell me that story of, like, the creator plucking, you know, yeah. the neutral hills up from the ground, it's, like, it's such good visual imagery of, like, what that place looks like. And I think even from a purely practical point of view, creating a myth mm -hmm. where like the creator intervenes, creates a sacredness oh, for, for sure. the space that then makes it 
an actual neutral place. Like, you know, it has oh, a practical filling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the fact that people like are not seeing the benefit in the sacred, even if it's like you're doing a pure rational practical analysis, which is, you know, yeah. discounting half of it. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's what I'm supposed to do as an anthropologist, but it's yeah, hard because you're, you're taught to try and be, not be, but try and step into the shoes of the other. Uh, so, yeah, the practical analysis is awesome, but it can be quite finicky. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it, and it also can, you know, sometimes discount the facts that like maybe sometimes the reason humans do things isn't, you know, completely fit in a rational box. And there's like some weird cultural reasons things yeah. can develop, you know, it's like the supernatural. Yeah. Like, so much of that that can be explained, but the, the fact that you can't explain it makes people be like, oh, it's not true. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. It's not there. Have you read uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan? Uh, I, I will. Uh, I'll give it to you unless as we leave. Cool. Let you borrow it. It's really great. Skim uh, through it. Do you know who Michael Pollan is at all? Mm -mm. Oh, yeah. See, this is this interesting thing about like you people who are real academics is that like I always just read kind of like pop literature. And, yeah. So Michael Pollan is the guy who wrote Omnivore's Dilemma, which is like one of my favorite books. It's just like he he likes to just like take a subject and he's a journalist so he's very mm -hmm. objective about it and like go all the way back to humans to like today and how to change your mind is all about psychedelics and oh, it's cool. it's really cool that he did it because like he's really respected amongst the like food industry okay. and like oh has a lot of concerns with like industrial farming and whatnot and but through that he really got into plants mm -hmm. and he really got into growing his own things and then it kind of just naturally led to psychedelics and it's a really cool kind of analysis of mm -hmm. like, and through it, he goes through like a series of his like psychedelic journeys, you know, different ones with different shamans and like comes to this thing of like, you know, I just understand different stories and different literature so yeah. much better because of these experiences. And even if I can't explain the experience, the fact that I sometimes read someone talk about something else sacred and now get it is leads to a more fulfilling life. Oh, for sure. It's that open understanding, I and mean, you can get anywhere with an open understanding, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, sometimes, like, like in my psychedelic experience, I think initially, like, a lot of my doing drugs was just somewhat immature. It was just, like, I was trying to escape, and I was really drunk or whatnot, mm -hmm. and I've since, like... I'm kind of like coming to a wrapping up the end of my psychedelic journey. I've been getting into meditation and ways of kind of yeah. reaching into my subconscious without, you know, the aid of a substance. Sure. But I've recognized like the similarities between like what happens in a very significant dream, one that like sticks with me yeah. and like this significance of what happens in like a deep meditative state and what happens when I like bring an intention into a psychedelic experience like yeah are all so connected yep. and they're always kind of filled with archetypes nice. and story and imagery mm -hmm. that is i think you know consistent across the human experience well it helps tell the story and it it, it helps stick kind of how you were mentioning before too when you have that story you have that link you have that ability to recall it in a matter that you know either brings pleasure or brings you know whatever emotion comes to mind yeah for sure and um i think maybe that you know i there's I'd like to kind of talk about this in the context of anthropology and archaeology because I had a Seclo Scott on the podcast and she was taking an anthropology course and she was talking about like getting mad at a way a lot of the traditional kind of anthropology was done and it's like I and I don't know this but she you know I think there's this issue of like wanting to freeze a lot of indigenous cultures in time mm -hmm. and she's like no this is a living culture yeah. and like yeah. when I tell you a myth about the bushman like not like it don't treat that as like a myth or mm -hmm. myth. it's hard using these words that the definition implies it's not true it's yeah. like we believe that and it's true it's you know true. yeah it's a cultural story yeah, yeah cultural story is a good word and and maybe you can just kind of talk about that like within the discipline of like what's changing and why so it's uh, what's awesome with the discipline is like in the beginning in the 50s and previously it was what everyone would refer to as like armchair academics 100 percent armchair archaeology yeah. You sit from a distance, you read about them, maybe you'll go and watch these uh, groups, you'll take some notes, take some of their stuff and leave. Yeah, yeah that's, exactly. That's you'll literally steal their what shit. You'll is steal another... their shit, you'll leave, you'll go give it to a museum, you'll write a whole bunch of papers that, you know, will make you feel great. Maybe 20 other academics will read it. It doesn't get anywhere. Yeah. That's And now what's great about archaeology, at least from the, from the discipline that I was being studied or studying and being taught by my professors, was that's 
not the case anymore. Now yeah. we want to put as much of the information not only in the hands of those of the culture that we're studying, but we want to try and spread it as much as possible to the world at, at wide. So yeah. one of the biggest things is, um, and I think the reason uh, we won our, like we did a um, independent research project through Bodo, uh, yeah. bringing um, archaeology into the classroom, and we ended up winning a national conference because of the fact that it was so heavy on what's called public archaeology. Yeah. Doing archaeology for the public's sake, not for the sake of a, of a academic article or anything like that. You're doing it to distribute it. And um, that's kind of the way a lot of people are now heading is that if if your information can't get past 20, 30 people that are reviewing it, what's the point really of having it out there? Um, so thankfully now it's really kind of going in that direction as well as a lot of my professors and stuff like that are really like I'd like to think they're great allies uh, to yeah. those that they're studying. Like they've, they've taken the time out to understand uh, their culture and really kind of but hold their privilege and understand their privilege. A lot of our classes were about that. Like, hey, you're going into this uh, group. Uh, you can't assume to know them. You can't assume to do these things, but try and do your best to kind of uh, integrate uh, so that they can feel comfortable with you and you can feel comfortable with them. Treat them as your family. And that's really the shift in anthropology, at least from, from the perspective that I'm, I know of it. And that's what made me feel even more closely related to it um, because my people would have been one of those people being studied, right? Yeah. Like, especially uh, Indigenous Islanders, the, that group, especially in Polynesia, you know, they've been um, romanticized for a very long time with little understanding of what's really happened to them at the same time, whereas now you have a lot of researchers that try not to romanticize, try and understand where they're at today, you know, and, and what they need today. Yeah, and I think gaining that understanding is, to me, actually the most interesting part. It's like, you know, you can take this example of, like, uh, there's the neutral hills, and mm -hmm. then it's here, and it exists, and then you can, like, apply an anthropological or archaeological uh, lens to it and be like, oh, this is why this happens. Done. And it's yeah, like... Yeah, and walk away. Yeah, yeah but it's like, yeah. who... Like, to some point, who even cares? It's more interesting to me, like, to the people who are currently part of that culture, like, what do they think it does? Mm -hmm. And, like, and then why... Why do they think that? And, like, you have to go back into such a cultural level to, like, mm -hmm. figure out the why questions that aren't, like, you know, just explaining it away with academia. And like the tough part is like you were mentioning with the neutral hills it being important to that cultural group the unfortunate part about that whole area is it's all private property we had to get approval from farmers that own the land to go yeah. do it to take someone that that was their cultural land to go take us there to tell us the story of of, of the land itself and like there's an even uh, another area a very important area called sounding lake same thing we couldn't end up seeing it because the landowners farmers and f a few other people their main thing was we don't want people coming on this land and laying any sort of claim to it yeah because they're scared that they're gonna lose it yeah and people get very territorial about very land. like especially in alberta because it's all private land yeah uh, unfortunately it's not like up here where you know it's it's a lot of um i don't know is it considered crown land up here uh, or yeah. territorial land or, yeah, or whatever, whatever the consideration there's, is there's uh commissioner's land and there's territorial land which will be combined in the new public lands act and be called public land um, eventually, but then there's the fact is we also have a bunch of private land using in quotations because there's settled land claims and the indigenous groups in the settled land claim areas now own their land. Okay, so, which that that makes sense for yeah, sure. Yeah, super complicated. Uh, sounds complicated. Um, but what's nice is that it, it feels like up here though, if someone wanted to go and use this piece of land for their own cultural heritage reasons, I don't think it would be as hard as in Alberta where the land is all owned by private individuals, or or would it be? As someone that might know a little more about that. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. And I think actually probably f from even like a his archaeological, armchair archaeological mm -hmm. society, point of view, all of the sites in the north have been understudied. Yeah, for sure. And just yeah. like ignored. And now there's like a huge push by the indigenous groups to like take the lead on nice. like, yeah. you know, collecting that information and like, you know, because it has a lot of benefit to the communities. And I, 100%. I think a lot of like my young friends who are indigenous and like, you know, are practicing anthropology, you know, even if it's not in the most academic sense or like are mm -hmm. starting to really, you know, whether it's called traditional knowledge or whether it's, you know, academic or whatever, or trying to really take note of these sites and like mm -hmm. preserve that, you know, yeah, take the ways. knowledge that you can. Yeah.
And I, I think, I, I don't know, I don't get the sense that there's anyone in the North who's like unwilling to kind of help in that venture, you know, yeah, whereas Alberta, awesome. I can imagine Alberta's just full of private redneck farmers who uh, may not want that to happen. Yeah, it's, it's tough to get anything done down there. Um, and it's, it's sad because I've even heard from a lot of people that have worked on the oil fields and stuff like that being like, oh yeah, we get in trouble from our uh, foreman if we say we found an arrowhead or something. And they'll literally pick it up and throw it just so that they don't have to do a mitigation on site yeah. uh, for cultural history. I, I've heard that all over the place, that like finding oh, an so archaeological rough. site while you're doing something is just like, oh shit, don't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah. and I'm like, no, tell us. Yeah, Let yeah, us yeah. come. Like, We'll clear the site. Like, I get it'll take time, but who knows what cultural importance that area could have. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's like, well, <laughs> it's like, you're humans living on this land. Like, yeah, do you not want to know more about it? Like, I don't understand how that is interesting a lot. Nothing more than what's 20,000 kilometers deep in gold, or not gold, but black and gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, okay, I'm going to take a little break here and refill my teacup. Mm-hmm. Um, back with our tea. I'm just continuing on this kind of like, you know, these redneck fucking Albertans <laughs> not letting people study anthropology. Um, kind of, so I'd like to kind of talk to you about how uh, being Albertan fits into your identity, because that's another one, you know? There's just one. the. Yeah. You know, I think Alberta maybe gets a bad rap, or perhaps it's a deserted rap of being, you know, a little intolerant and it's a little bit of both for sure. Like being born and raised in Edmonton, I like I love Edmonton, but I know that it is it can be pretty rough as a, as a multicultural individual out there. Um, like the earliest, I guess maybe I don't know. Everyone's experience is different. Yeah. Um, but mine growing up, like I, I instantly knew from when I was young that I was different than everyone else and, you know, treated differently. Never understood why until I was older. And I was like, oh, it's my skin color <laughs> or like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's yeah. because my food smells different or whatever it may be. Um, so it's very interesting. Like uh, I am Alberta proud, um, but there's some things that Alberta could really work on for sure. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> like what? Give us some uh, fucking example. Uh, I mean, I guess. No, we'll see. Like, they got the NDP government right now, which I think is all good. Like, I, I do like Rachel Notley. I think, you know, she's very strong in her stance and her support for the LGBTQ community, which I think is super important in Alberta because uh, there is such a, uh, like you mentioned, the, the mindset and the mentality that there can be super conservative. Yeah. And, and I know that group has a really hard time in Alberta already, just from all my friends and family down there. So I think that'll be good. I hope we don't go back to another conservative um, monarchy. Cause that was, <laughs> what, almost 30 years of conservative rule. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they had it for a while. I think they've had their time. And I think they, it's, it's time for someone else. Um, but there isn't really any other party in Alberta. Like, the Liberals haven't had it since, like, the 40s, 50s, so... Yeah, I don't know. I, I know nothing about Alberta party politics. Is there is there not a Liberal party? Or, like, how many seats do they have right now? Like, like they barely... Nine. Like, there's There's just NDP and Conservative? Or, I mean, yeah, I guess there's mostly just That's kind of like how the federal government is right now, mm-hmm. in the same sense. Mm-hmm. The Libs, they were there a long time ago, and they just... They, they lost out to the Conservatives, and the Conservatives held it for almost 20, 30 years. Uh, and then now the NDP has it, and and I hope they hold on because they are very NDP in, in their in their stance and their values with healthcare, education, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I do hope they stick around. But there's a lot of misinformation in Alberta about like, you know carbon tax and all these different things. And I join a lot of although I'm you know super left uh, social media. I join a lot of right wing yeah, yeah, groups and, just and out the of fucking curiosity. echo chamber. You have yeah, to, exactly. And it's just like. <laughs> Uh, like I like to know what these people are thinking and why they're thinking what they're thinking and it's it's reminds me a lot of the states the amount of misinformation going around and conspiracy theories and this and that and I just wish I could just shake them and be like no just not everything you read online is true (laughs) yeah I mean sometimes you want to shake them but sometimes you also just have to sit down and have a fucking hour-long conversation with someone you don't understand that's true (laughs) it's the unfortunate reality of life you know um Okay, cool. I, so I actually don't know much about Edmonton. It's funny because mm-hmm. I, when I picture Calgary, I know Calgary has this like redneck, you know, stampede thing, but mm-hmm. it's like, maybe just like, like Roxanne was talking. She's like, I'm from Northeast Calgary. It's like the most multicultural place on fucking planet yeah. Earth, you know, like you're hard pressed to find a white person at times. So like, what's, uh, what's Edmonton like? And like, did you grow up in a part of Edmonton? That was yeah, like... for sure. I grew up in the North side, which is very multicultural, just like yeah. as uh, kind of Roxanne had mentioned about her part of time. So I grew up with a lot of Middle Eastern individuals, a lot of people fr- from India, Pakistan. Um, but that was interestingly enough, more when I got older yeah. than more in the high school area. Uh, cause 
think when I was younger, the populations were still quite low. It wasn't as multicultural as it is now. Okay. There was a huge influx of, um, you know, individuals that either came on refugee status uh, in the last 20, 30 years from all the different things that have been happening around the world. So, I'd, like, I know there's a large influx of people from the Middle East, large influx of uh, people from um, the former Yugoslav area. So we had a lot of Bosnians, Serbians, Albanians that came after that. Uh, kind of wartime that they had unfortunately had their civil war uh, we had a lot a large influx of uh, Somali individuals when they were having some political struggle so like a lot of the resentment right now is towards the immigration community the immigrant communities and it's just because there's more people and like there's enough jobs to go around like Edmonton's a pretty like Alberta as much as they are going through a hard time right now for sure um, with everything that's happening but it's better than most places in Canada I'd have to say uh, if you're looking for a job if you're looking for a place that's affordable uh, Edmonton would probably be my recommendation if you're looking for a city to live in yeah I like to think that Canada does the I mean it and you know obviously Canada has all its problems with racism but like mm-hmm. um, does the acceptance of like second generation immigrants probably better than anywhere in the world I think like you oh, know, for sure I think you know there's always resentment for a new group and humans like to preserve their borders and whatnot mm-hmm. but like you know this like so can you tell me about your like why did your family initially move to canada and so you're like you know that you're are you first first generation i guess is how you say it. sorry yeah. yeah i'm first generation yeah. yeah so what's that like and so like my mom came when she was like seven years old so my grandparents uh my mom's dad and mom yeah. came here way back in the, in the late 60s early 70s uh just to start a new beginning right they they had it quite well off so they Originally, it's it's quite interesting. Their side of the family, uh, one of my great grandparents, grandparents wrote a book on their history. Yeah, that's the only way I know any of this. Thankfully, is because of him. Yeah, um, but they came over during the plantation times. He came over with nothing. He worked worked his ass off, bought his first cow, and then basically from that built basically a small farm empire kind of a thing. So he was one of the ones that w- was able to become quite successful, and then through that success as a lot of people say a successful sign of the family is the fact that you can move away and create successful in other places. So my grandfather had uh, 11 brothers and sisters, big family. So him and a couple others moved to Edmonton just to kind of spread. And they ended up doing quite well here. And then my dad came when he came to get married to my mom because they were in arranged marriage. And he came in 83 uh, when it was time for them to get married. Oh, interesting. So, well, <laughs> range marriage is interesting to me, <laughs> yeah. having no actual knowledge of them. Is that, so is that like, uh, because it's an Indian thing, or is that a Muslim thing, or is that just like the, you're that part of I the family? Both, like, I'd say. Um, like, why does that I'd exist? say all of the above. So, <laughs> yeah. it's a very um, East Indian cultural thing, super popular out there, mm-hmm. uh, and very common in Islamic communities as well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were married. My parents are actually cousins as well, too. So my mom mom, and my dad's mom are sisters, which in India, that's the only way you can marry if you're cousins is if it's on that side. So they have a oh, paternal, fraternal type thing where you can't do one side, but you can do the other. So that's when so then they got married and then had us, me and my older brother, and my younger brother. Um, so yeah, so they came over for those reasons. Uh, a lot of my other family came over on refugee status, um, cause during the, the late eighties, early nineties, during all the coups, yeah. um, although they were bloodless and thankfully no one was hurt during the coups, there was still a lot of instability and, uh, Canada took in a lot of Fijians at that time too. And then I had a lot of family come here in the, around 2008, 2009, maybe a little bit before when Alberta was booming like crazy yeah, and they yeah. were bringing in an influx of immigrant uh, workers. A lot of them came over on uh, working visas, excuse me, to work for places like Boston Pizza, Tim Hortons, stuff like that. Oh, so that's really recent. Like, you have family who's moved here, like, in the last... Like, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Family, yeah. like, one of my close family members, um, he, yeah, he only moved up here maybe four years ago. He just got a citizenship last year. Yeah. So, and, and I see him all the time. He, he speaks really good English and stuff, because in Fiji, they, they get you to... English yeah. is important. So what linguist do, do you speak? What is it? Hindi, Fijian? Or what's the yeah, language? Yeah, like Fiji, Hindi. Um, yes and no. I understand it. I'm not comfortable speaking it, though. Yeah. Like, I really got to work on my confidence. Um, but, like, when I'm speaking yeah, to my grandparents all for life. Stuff, for sure. <laughs> so, like, my grandparents will speak to me in Hindi, and I'll speak back in English. So that's okay, kind of the dynamic yeah, yeah. there, for sure. Like, I'd like to get a better grasp of it, because I think it would be fun to, you know, talk back to them. But it's... Yeah, uh, all my grandparents were able to 
speak different languages to each other. Yeah, I, it's so interesting. Though. That's like one of, I think, the unifying uh, immigrant, like first generation things is even my friend Arthur is Polish and his mm-hmm. mom basically only speaks Polish like and speaks Polish to him yeah. and he replies in English yeah. and because he's not comfortable speaking Polish but like completely understands his mother you yeah know? that's the situation where and it's just like so interesting to have like constant different language yeah. back and forth but like with complete understanding yeah like there's sometimes where maybe be a word yeah I should, maybe I shouldn't say complete yeah, close but, but for sure it's uh the understanding is there yeah and some people don't really understand when I speak English so yeah, that's true <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, that's true. super interesting um, okay. And then, so the other thing I kind of like to talk about, I always, I don't know why I'm kind of on it. Maybe I'm having an identity crisis in my life or, I'm, <laughs> you know, maybe it's just like, there's something about like the white privilege of like a Canadian society that's starting to like, you know, be tested and thought about more. Maybe I'm just thinking about it more. It's like, it's an important thing to be thought about. Yeah. Is that like, there's so many of us just like white Canadians who are like, you know, like I, guess i'm kind of swedish it's like i don't even like it's so and it's like my family's like a few generations old now that it's like it's almost irrelevant you know yeah i have no relatives in any country that i could look up like maybe i could track them down but they would yeah distant relatives kind of yeah so it's like my identity is just like you know white canadian you know Mm -hmm. and what is that and i always like i'm exploring that and it's like um but for and like how I raise my kids is like how I also think about that because it's like I don't have kids for anyone. That's a thought know. though, right? Yeah, yeah like what culture do. do I pass on to them? And it's like mm-hmm. what does that culture kind of look like? And you have that choice of it, which is super interesting as a human, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a large, some some extent, you just gets passed on. You can't help it. But, oh yeah, um, so it will be like if cultural stuff, I'll have to get my parents to kind of pass it down <laughs> because I'm so like excuse the term whitewashed <laughs> yeah, just yeah. from yeah being grown up the way i was grown up because i was always taught that that's the way to live life i was always ashamed of of my identity initially until i realized after everyone was like oh cool you're from some island somewhere well not not really i was born in edmonton but my family is yeah, yeah. And, but yeah and then there's this thing that happens i think as you get older you get become more interested in these things because mm-hmm. you kind of want to connect yourself to the chain of human causation that happened before you and you know cultures is a great way to do that and uh i mean but to say it's whitewashed is i don't even think i yeah well it's like but you also get a choice of like picking and choosing what you want you know to pass on and like you know would sure. like for example would you raise your kids muslim that's, like that's a decision you have to make for sure i think that's something i'd give them the choice in the matter um i for sure would raise them to understand what it is to be a muslim and, and islamic beliefs uh just because you know i'd want them to respect that fa- like my family values um and then they can make up their decision on what they feel the most comfortable with so instead of like myself i was born into it i i feel like i'd want to give them the choice because then i think it would be stronger connection for them instead of constantly wavering back and forth yeah but that's yeah i mean that's a nice nice sentiment you yeah. say but like you know at some point you gotta decide whether you're dragging the eight-year-old to the mosque or not like you know True. and they don't get to be kicking and screaming you yeah. know it's like it's you can't at some well, point I you can give myself <laughs> yeah you can give a child a choice at some age but mm-hmm. at, you know eight you probably can't and six or you know like i probably wouldn't take the kids seriously <laughs> till they're 18 <laughs> yeah exactly so you can give them a choice at 18 but at that yeah. point they just have a choice because they're human they're you know human. like no i gave you that right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i gave you the choice <laughs> well, fuck you I do what i want i'm a teenager yeah um all right, I don't know. Anything else you want to talk about? I, I feel like we covered quite a few things. Uh, I think so. Pretty in-depth. A little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe just uh, wrap up with uh, what's the future... I mean, I take it you're not leaving Yellowknife anytime soon. You bought a boat. You bought buy, Naughty Boy. Uh, yeah, I got Naughty yeah. Boy. Um, um, I'm going to buy a truck this week to, so that I can get Naughty Boy around. Oh, well, fuck yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, I accidentally did the trailer before the horse, or what is it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. before the horse. Yeah, I'll probably uh, borrow your yeah, truck yeah, at some yeah, point. You're more than welcome <laughs> it's to. Look, it's I on like, contract. There it's it similar. is. We use it for the makerspace. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, I just want it to be a, f- a workhorse. So I'm getting the biggest box I can get and, yeah, perfect. and have fun with it. Um, um, yeah, so I'm excited to be up here. I really enjoy it. I'm, I'm looking forward to the summer because last summer I worked every weekend and just worked constantly. So I'm excited to hopefully take advantage a little bit of this summer. Well, and you're an education assistant right now. So, yeah, like, so, so you I got the summer, summer break? Are you going to uh, pick well, up I'm gonna some work. other work? I'm going to pick up another job. Like I'll, I'll need something full time because the, the pay ends at the end of... Um, 
Maybe you want to be a executive director of Makerspace YK and Shoot, run a Makerspace. I, I would be more than happy to do that. Yeah, I mean, we're going to pay you non-profit wages, but, you know, hey, you get to hang out at a workshop. put a little bit of food in my tummy, you know what I mean, and mm. build shit all day, why not? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll chat we'll offline chat. Yeah, now. there it is. <laughs> um, maybe you can do us a favor and ring the ship's bell to sure. end the episode. All right, thanks, everyone. Woo!